Welcome into the Platform Podcast and Happy New Year. 2020 has been a hell of a ride. I hope that 2021 is your best year yet. Uh, In this episode, we bring in Audrey Carlson, who is an addiction counselor and a licensed marriage and family therapist, uh, to talk about some strategies to have a successful dry January or at least a uh, reduction in alcohol consumption in January if that's your preferred uh, approach. I really wanted to have this episode uh, come out before the turn of the year because I know a lot of people like to take on dry January. Uh, I myself is going to be doing uh, am going to be doing it for reasons I'll get into in the episode and uh, if anybody cares to join me uh, feel free to reach out to me on social media and also please check out resources uh, that are in the show notes. Uh, you can contact Uh, Audrey's company, Lion Rock Recovery. If you need professional help, they do 100% online support. They also have links to free resources like support groups uh, for alumni and uh, many other other resources and groups especially designed for uh, first responders as well. So um, if you need support, please check those resources out or feel free to reach out to me. Happy New Year. Let's make 2021 the best year yet. Thank you for listening. And without further ado, let's get into this week's episode. All right, welcome into the platform podcast. My guest today is Audrey Carlson. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist, as well as a member of the Twin Cities Kettlebell Club sport team. So she has been with us for a little while, lifting bells for a long time, which we're definitely going to talk about. Um, But we're also going to get into some strategies for how to successfully, hopefully, accomplish a dry January. Uh, And she has some expertise in that area, which is part of the reason I asked her to come on. But first, we're going to talk about kettlebells. So Audrey, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me, coach. Yeah, of course. Of course. So let's see, how long has it been now? I'm terrible with, with dates and stuff because like my wife literally just asked me last night, like, what did we do for your, for your birthday this year? And I was like, I don't know. That was like 15 years ago because <laughs> everything feels, everything feels so, feels so long ago. Um, but I'm like, I was actually trying to remember. I was like, how long has it been? Has it been over a year? Has it been like, I, I can't even, I can't even remember. It feels like we've been training together for a long time, but like time is so nebulous right now. I, I can't, I can't even remember. Yeah. Well, actually I remember it just because it was marked by the pandemic. I remember it was a couple weeks after shelter in place had started. So here where I live in Travis County in Austin, Texas, we had official shelter in place around like March 15th. And so I actually was motivated by that of like, shoot, like I need to get healthy. I had really slacked off on training and nutrition and I'm like, Hey, I'm stuck at home. I had to go get my bells from the gym cause my gym closed. And I was very fortunate that the gym owner let me take all my bells there and leave them there. Um, so I remember training by myself, like reigniting on my own and then thinking like, I need help. Um, and so I reached out to you because obviously we've been connected through, um, another 
kettlebell team when you were yeah we we lifted we lifted together on the as as members of the texas kettlebell academy which i again i can't remember when that was precisely but a couple of a couple a couple of years a couple of years ago yeah yeah 2017 2018 working with with coach vivial there and and coach gorman uh at at the texas kettlebell academy what up coaches hope y'all are and like just so the listeners know we had never met in person because you were training remotely Um, in chicago yeah yeah, the Texas Kettlebell Academy from Chicago. <laughs> yeah, but I'd always liked your posts, and you know, I think we had actually practiced live together maybe a couple of times. I don't, I don't recall all those yeah. details, but anyway, so that's a little bit of the history. Is you know, I had been training off and on by myself since leaving um, the previous team, and you know, it, it was much more difficult. But I managed to do it for probably about nine months, and then I met my current boyfriend, and you know how that goes, like kind of. Oh yeah. Every time I've met a, met a new boyfriend, it's been, you know, it's always always thrown my life into into chaos. (laughs) Yeah. So it's a good relationship, but we were just spending a lot of time together. I was neglecting that. So that's 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 an awesome phase of a relationship, right? That, that new, like that's always an exciting and new thing. So that's totally, that's totally understandable, but yeah, it's great that it's great that like you were able to get your bells and that you have somewhere there that you could work out because Texas has been open, mostly open, but now has had some lockdowns and you live in Austin, which is a little bit uh, more liberal. So it's probably been, there's been a little bit liberal in the political leanings sense, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which means they are actually more open to restriction probably than other areas of Texas, I would think. Um, But you can correct me if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, but so that's, that's awesome that, that you were actually able to procure your bells and that you have somewhere to put them. And now you, well, now you've got them in the garage, which I know obviously. So yeah. And I decided not to go back to the gym, even once it opened and things loosened up, I just wasn't comfortable. And, um, you know, honestly, training has been one of the few things other than my supportive relationship that's kept me sane just because this has been really hard. I mean, now we're in what month? Is 10, this what sanity feels like? <laughs> I know it's, it's yeah. So, but that was a conscious decision on my part. Cause I just had the sense of, I need to get grounded. I need to get yeah. back to what helps me and, and exercise has always been that. Yeah. I hear you like that. I, that was like 100% my, uh, impetus for like transitioning from, you know, I had been doing in-person classes here in Minnesota and some doing some online remote stuff with people like on an individual basis. But once the gym's all closed, I was like, Oh God, <laughs> what, what do I do? Like, this is my, this is my like respite every, and I was like, well, I guess I'm just going to start doing zoom and we'll see who comes and I'm going to start doing like Instagram live and we'll see who comes and you know. Yeah. Actually, that's awesome. I didn't even nice expect transition. Yeah. I didn't even expect that, you know, I just thought you would program for me. I would train on my own and you know, so that was, that was awesome. And it's, it's yeah, it's really been, helpful. it's been great. Like it's I, like, I love, I love the I love the times that we have. Like it's, uh, it makes me so happy to do one. every time. Every time I, every time I turn on the turn on the Zoom link, uh, I'm like, oh God, I hope somebody comes because I'm, I'm just so you like, you know, I got so used to training by myself for such a long time that I got used to that. But then I, I realized like as as we got like, you know, there are days we have eight nine people in the in the Zoom class and that's fantastic. Yeah. And I just realized like how much how much uh, positive energy I, I derive from that. It like recharges my battery. It helps me get out of my head, which is always which is always problematic. So I love, I love that. But um, let's go back into the Wayback Machine a little bit. Tell us, tell us a little bit more about your, your athletic background growing up and then how you, how you came into to kettlebells and like 
how did you stumble into kettlebell training? But let's start with what's your athletic background, you know, back in high school and yeah. So yeah, I was always really active as a little kid and did group sports, baseball and different things like that. And then I was a competitive swimmer for most of my life. Um, what distances did you do? In swimming? So I did uh, 200 freestyle and 500 freestyle and then 200 IM. So I'm five, two, I could not compete in the sprints <laughs> with all the tall girls and women. So my coach, I think it was probably sophomore year in high school was like, you should do distance. And so that, that was really great. Cause it's just, the competition was less. Um, and I, and I had a chance cause you know, I, I was uh, competing with some, some just like-minded people, you know, similar body types. So that was really my athletic. I loved swimming. I actually, um, used to do ballet and piano growing up, but I put those aside cause I really wanted to focus on swimming. So did that, didn't compete in college. Um, I went to UCSC in Santa Cruz, go banana slugs. Didn't end up competing, um, you know, train. One of the best mascots of all time. <laughs> right? Um, I've actually seen many of them. They're actually there in the forest. It's pretty cool. But um, yeah, so ended up not competing in college just because of school situation, just with the classes, I decided to focus on the education. Now, did you grow, grow up in Texas and went to college in California or yep. did you grow up in California? Okay. No, You're Texas to, born and bred? Yeah. Went to, well, I was actually born in Iceland and then have been in Austin since I was two. How did, That's I, how a, did I not know this? Another story. Um, my parents were there. Uh, my mom was finishing her dissertation. My dad was teaching. So that that's that. But my mom was born and bred in West Texas and went to UT. And so we ended up moving back. And so I consider myself a Texan, although native Texans would probably dispute <laughs> since I wasn't actually born a, here. A whole like person at like a whole complex that's built around an identity complex that's built around being from Texas and who's native and who's not. And that's true. That's a thing. Whether it's whether it's your own country or not. And I, I kind of feel like you need a passport to go to Texas right. because it is like it is its own kind of culture there. It's 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 a little different. Yeah, but it's in very a, in, a good way. in a good way. I love Texas. Yeah. yeah, well, I moved to Santa Cruz, California when I was 18, and I ended up staying there for almost 25 years, not intentionally, um, and went back to school while I was there to get my master's. And then, How do you accidentally live somewhere for 25 years? Well, I meant to move back. I just kept meaning <laughs> to move back, and I think just the laziness of moving combined yeah. with then, you know, building support and then the career and then... yeah. You know, but finally I was like, okay, I, I really want to do it because it was always a, a pull to be back here. And I would come, you know, a couple times a year, visit my mom, friends. And so yeah. um, I'm really happy I moved back. Uh, it's been four years now that I've been back nice. in Austin. Yeah. And so when, when did you stumble into kettlebells? So I actually stumbled into kettlebells um, again, accidentally. I had been exposed to like hard style in gyms just a little bit. Like, you know, that's typically what's in gyms. And there were some classes mm -hmm. here and there. Um, but what happened was I lost my husband. My husband died from a heroin overdose in 2013. We'd been married eight months, um, and, you know, went through appropriate depression related to grieving for quite some time. And then realized that, you know, again, exercise, fitness, sport competition has always been what's kept me grounded and, and just really, been a passion. So it was like, I need to find something I need to get back into it. I need to, 
you know, I need help. Like I just always saw it as a community and a way to get help. Um, and so I just started looking for gyms and found a, a membership gym called Iron Republic um, run by Seth Munzee. It's now closed, but it's uh, it was in the Monterey Peninsula area. And so, um, yeah, I joined and learned hard style uh, as well as DVRT sandbag training. Loved it. Um, it was, it was so great. It was a community. It was really what I needed. It, it really saved me. I mean, it really pulled me out of that and, you know, gave me the support and the routine and the structure and obviously, you know, all the physical benefits of exercise, the dopamine yeah. and all that. Um, so that was really exciting. So then, you know, it was, that was a really hard factor to leave because it was such a community. And then when I moved, was going to move back to Austin, that was actually what I started researching before I started looking for a job <laughs> where <laughs> I going to do kettlebells. <laughs> and I couldn't find it. He even tried to network to see, you know, were there any, um, you know, kettlebell gyms or you gotta, you gotta have your priorities. Like I need to work out, yeah. then I need to pay the bills. Exactly. So <laughs> I, maybe ended I need up finding, somewhere to live and sleep. <laughs> yeah. I ended up fighting Texas kettlebell had no idea what sports style was never had heard of it, never had seen it. And so this is, you know, spring of 2016, I'm preparing to move. And so I'm out here visiting and I go to look at the gym and, you know, talk to Aaron, talk to Jess and, um, I didn't really understand, you know, it's different. I was just like, oh, these are, these are kettlebells. They look different, but you know, and, and he explained a little bit of the difference, but of course I, I didn't understand. And so I ended up moving back and then I was like, oh, you know, I'm just doing this for fitness. Like I'm not going to compete, you know, <laughs> like four <laughs> months later, I was like, um, actually maybe I'll compete. <laughs> um, and then the rest was just like, stick a fork in me. That yeah. That's like, where you get the, the, I'm, 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 I'm just going to do this, but I'm not going to compete. And that's where all the coaches go. Okay. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah that's fine okay that's fine because <laughs> we we all know like everybody knows like if you're around you're around enough you're around the sport enough and you're around people that are doing the sport enough like eventually eventually well you know i'm doing all these practices i kind of may as well like give it a try <laughs> usually usually how it goes and then then you're hooked and we yeah get you. And we, yeah and, we and it was so awesome and again the community of it and then you know going to my first competition which was here in austin texas open yeah, that was my first. And then Deck the Bells was my second. And so, um, so like, 2017, 2016? Let's see. It was, I think it must have been 2017 open. It was in the summer or I think September 2017. And then yeah, I did Deck the Bells shortly yeah, thereafter in December. And then I did California open the following year, February 2018. So, yeah, I mean, it, this is just the hardest sport I've ever done um really harder than swimming <laughs> like I'm, I'm, I mean I'm, I'm serious because to me swimming is like like it's ridiculous like swimming is so hard especially like well the sprints are the sprints are super hard for their for their own reasons but like distant distance swimming to me like like just mentally seems impossible like yeah when people are like oh yeah I did a 5,000 meter open water swim I'm like how did you not die because <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm like uh, buoyancy is not great for me like I'm a I'm a 
very muscular large man you know but uh, yeah. like so swimming requires a f- decent amount of effort but I'm also not like an elegant swimmer by any stretch so like to me it's just in my head like swimming seems every bit as hard as kettlebell but maybe yeah. maybe it's just because I haven't I haven't ever really been trained in it but I don't, right so well just, and maybe I'm it's because I'm surprised s- to hear that yeah maybe it's because I started when I was so teeny you know mm-hmm. like I was practically swimming before I was walking you know, my dad taught me how to swim I was always just love the water still do. And so, you know, maybe if I had started sport earlier, it, it wouldn't seem as hard. <laughs> oh, okay. I mean, sport's but, hard. I mean, it's, it, it's, yeah. it is the hardest thing I've ever done too, but just in my head, like I, that's good. Like I said, and you were a football a, player. I've which never is been hard. a competitive swimmer. So oh, that's like, that's just like, are you willing to crash into other humans at full speed? <laughs> like, yeah, sure. That sounds fun. <laughs> yeah. But, okay. That's so, so that makes a lot of sense though. Like the, got the you got the the competitive nature ingrained in you from a from a very young age you had your thing that you did and then you you needed it like I mean uh, you know I I didn't I didn't know your husband died of an overdose I knew you lost I knew you lost your your husband uh, in 2013 but I didn't know it was from a from an overdose so you know obviously I'm sorry to hear that you went through that and that adds kind of another piece to the, to the puzzle of, of why you've chosen the, the professional career path that you've, that you've chosen. So um, let's talk, talk a little bit about that. I mean, um, when did you, when did you decide you wanted to be a a therapist and when did you, when did you go down, down that, that route? Well, let's see, I went back to school. So I got my undergrad, you know, I was 18. I got my undergrad in psychology. Honestly, it was like the deadline my junior year to declare a major. I went to UCSC. <laughs> so it like, what? The Which major's not smoking the most pot? Pre- like, I, I done, thought that was the, the major. Most you know? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, back then we didn't have grades, you know, we had narrative evaluations and um, I, I just, you know, I just never was one of those people that had this absolute of like, I know what I want to do. Like I was always interested in people's stories. Um, after college, after undergrad, I worked for enterprise rent a car. People would get in the car cause you go and you pick them up and take them back to the store to get their car. And they would just like, tell me their life story. I always found it very interesting. Um, and so then it was actually my therapist who encouraged me to go back to school to become a therapist. Oh, wow. So I did pretty much weekly therapy for about five years between started around 2004. Um, I just sort of had my midlife crisis early, I guess. And I just felt like I didn't really know where my life was going, what I was doing. Um, I think I had always just been really fortunate to sort of get by and be somewhat successful in whatever I did. Like, you know, not like top of the you know, not cream of the crop, but like, I don't know. I just always felt like I need- curve, the, always above the mean on the bell curve. Right. So I just felt like, okay, this, like I could envision myself at that time. I think I was like 30, 31. And I could envision myself like in my mid forties, miserable, just going nowhere. Like, and I just felt like, okay, I need to do something. So um, therapy was a great experience for me with her. Um, and so she encouraged me to go back to school. So anyway, so I graduated with my master's in 2008, I guess. Um, was working in the field actually when I met my husband, wasn't working in substance use field specifically. I'd done a little bit, but um, I was in the process actually of getting licensed because to be an LMFT in California, anyway, you need 3000 hours. And I was working full time in an unrelated field while I went back to school. And so it was taking 3000 hours. I was just trying to do the math. It's like two and a half years, right? Yeah. If you're doing it straight, like full time, it takes about two and a half years, but I was working full time 
not in the mental health field. And so mm. it's taking me forever. So long story short, I finally had to just take the leap of faith, take the pay cut, like do it full time and stumbled into a job in an emergency department working for mm. the county, which I had never even been in an emergency department. So I worked for the crisis team, loved it, like just absolutely loved it. That was just intense. a great experience. Yeah, it's really intense. And I ended up doing inpatient psych, hostage negotiation team, crisis team. And then when I moved back to Texas, also worked in a psych unit and then finally had to transition because my adrenal glands just couldn't <laughs> do anymore. Like yeah. I just needed a break. I mean, I'm 47 now. So, um, you know, working about eight years in the psychiatric emergency services, that was pretty much all I could do. I hats off to people who do it lifelong, any kind of first responder. It's just, it's really intense. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting. That's actually kind of how my, how my wife got, got into the mental health field as well. Like she was, she was in, she was in mental health in Chicago when we lived in Chicago and she was, she was in, uh, you know, a mental health, a mental health team. And then of course the, the hospital network that she worked for shut down all of their mental health care facilities. And, they gave her the choice of like, well, you can take a severance or you can take this job working in the emergency department at Northwestern, uh, M Northwestern Memorial Hospital, which is downtown Chicago, one of the biggest emergency departments in, in the country. Wow. Um, and, and she was like, I guess I'll do that. Uh, so she went from being, you know, working as a mental health provider to now she was in the emergency room as a, as a technician, but they wanted people with mental health training in the emergency department since they knew like, oh, we just closed mm -hmm. our, all our mental health facilities. We're going to see a lot more mental health patients in the ED. So we're going to need people with that, with that training. And like, she started working overnights in the, in the emergency department in one of the biggest hospitals in the country. Like, uh, you know, and it was, it was crazy. It was a crazy period of years. And now she's been in an emergency department for I mean, since then, and I, that's been over 10 yeah, years. Yeah. She's she, going to be a nurse, right? She's not yep. studying to be a nurse. Yeah. Yeah. She's that's got awesome. one, she's got one, one term, one term left before she can sit for the NCLEX and then she'll be, then she'll, you know, you know, fingers crossed. I'm sure she'll pass. She's very, very smart and she works really, really hard. So I'm sure yeah. she'll pass, but uh, yeah. So one more, one more term and then she'll be, and then she'll be a nurse. And she's like, yeah, I won't like maybe do the ICU. I'm like, oh, so we're just going to take it easy. Right? <laughs> But, you know, she's got that same kind of thing where like the intensity of it and the, the stakes of it and the pace of it and all of that, like, I think she, A, she's really, really good at that because she has the the wonderful capacity of like, she's super calm in an emergency, whereas mm -hmm. I, I'm like, oh my God, what, you know, like my kid, you know, somebody's bleeding, somebody's crying and she's just like, okay, what's, what's happening? Let's assess. Like she has that really incredible capacity of being able to just stay calm. So she's, she's great at that, but she also, I think thrives on the and the intensity of it and the stakes yeah. of it and the pace of it. So yeah, my, I, I'm, I'm with you, like hats off to anybody that can, can do it period, <laughs> yet alone do it for an extended period of time or for the entire duration of their career. Cause I know I couldn't handle it, but uh, we all know I'm not that tough. So <laughs> oh, it's, uh, it's uh, a fun, it's an interesting thing. And I, I guess that's what they, some people consider like a fun and fulfilling career. So I don't know if I could, I don't know if I can handle it, but so you are now a therapist and you work in the addiction field. When did, when did, the, when did the transition to the addiction field uh, happen? Yeah, so I, when I moved back to Texas, I worked briefly for a mobile crisis team, then took a position as a director of admissions for a psych hospital. And 
you know, did that for about a year and a half and decided, okay, management was a really good experience. I learned a lot, but it, it's just not for me. Um, herding cats is just, <laughs> it, it is, is, is a lot. Um, it's a thankless job. So hats off to managers out there. And I've had a lot of really good ones and a real, lot of really bad ones. And so I feel like, you know, it was nice to be able to apply that and just learn more about myself and, you know, just recognize where I have a skill and it's, it's not so much as a manager. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to just like slow things down, go back and be a therapist. And I got an opportunity to work for Lion Rock recovery and they've been a hundred percent online video, uh, treatment since they opened in 2010, 2009, 2010. Um, and so, yeah, exactly. And so working from home, um, you know, was a learning curve, but just decided, you know, I'm going to do this. It's intensive outpatient treatment. And so it's basically group counseling and individual counseling, and I'm an individual counselor. Um, and so, yeah, I really, I really love it. The program, they have just great curriculum, really good structure. Um, it, it's just, it's been fabulous. And then I also work for another healthcare company doing sort of more traditional therapy, couples counseling, individual counseling, not specific to substance use. And so, um, so I have two jobs and then I see clients kind of on my own through a platform called Sondermind. And that's, um, you know, just a platform that matches clients with therapists. So, so you have so, 2.5 jobs. It's not, yeah. It so I'm like still really. that emergency room kind of intensity, I guess. Um, <laughs> but just sprinkled in a little bit. Just yeah. Every, every yeah. While. Yeah. And that's a struggle that I have is balancing things. And you and I have talked about that. You know, yes. it's like I'm very all or nothing. Consistency can be difficult for me. Um, mm. and you know, like I'll like work too much or I'll play too much or, you know, I'll lie yeah. on the couch too much, <laughs> you know, so I, it's kind I of that struggle. Light, that, light, that light switch personality, right. Which mm -hmm. I think, uh, and you, you're, you're more the expert than I am in this. Uh, you know, I have my lived experience living in my own body. Um, you know, and I am very much, uh, that kind of light switch personality. And I also have an addictive personality, you know, mm -hmm. and I, I think those two kind of go hand in hand is there's kind of that all or nothing, like too much is never enough. Like that's kind of, right. I, I think, I think that tends towards the addictive side of, of the personality profile. Um, but I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong. That's, that's been my, uh, that's been my lived experience as well as what I know, what I know of from my, from my, you know, psychology degree is that, that, that ten, there tends to be an addictive personality type. Mm -hmm. um, and we can talk about reward cast reward cascade deficiencies in the brain. But um, I, I just, I also know that there tends to be just a certain personality type is kind of that, that strong, what we would call type A personality, very all or nothing. I, I call it the light switch personality because it's like either go yeah. or nothing. <laughs> right? Yeah, it's I kinda, like that. It's kind of the kind of the the binary that I that I use. Is that accurate? Is that is that your experience as well? Yeah, definitely. I think that you know, in working with addicts and struggling with my own addictions, I see that there's very much that black or white kind of thinking and what we call in the mental health field as cognitive distortions is just, you know, mm. having a thought, Oh, my thought must be correct. Or my feeling must be factual. And it's typically, you know, a very concrete thought, uh, black and white. And so I always try to look for gray. That's what I, you know, try to encourage clients is look for the gray, like challenge your brain to ask questions, to find those shades of gray. Um, 
and, just, and it's I'm hard chuckling cause... now because I just realized that that the logo that I that I had designed is all black and white. And I specifically <laughs> told him I want it to be a black and white logo. Like that's all, all my tattoos are black and white. Like my logo is black and white. So I just, you know, as you said that I, I've got the logo up behind me and I was like, oh, God, I, I didn't even realize I did everything in black and white. Uh, I mean, I knew that yeah. I did that, but I didn't I didn't correlate the two. So sorry, that's that's just yeah, me. that's funny. Well, the other commonality that I noticed and that I learned through my own therapy is um, difficulty tolerating emotions. So whether it's one's own emotions or other people's. And so I've had to really work on that over my lifetime. And you, you can talk to my mom. Like I was that kid that threw the tantrum in the store. I was the kid that was like zero to 60. Um, you know, she says, I was also really kind of hyper-focused on other people's emotions and asking like, why is that person sad? What's, what's mm. that person, you know? And so I think that's something that, you know, comes with maturity, um, but also just doing a lot of work to slow that down mm. and recognize the feeling. And that's where exercise and competition has helped me so much is because you have to focus on different aspects and you have to be really in tune with your body. Um, and I think a lot of people can describe sort of, you know, flying into a rage, right? Like that, mm -hmm. that phrase itself is like, just, you see red and all of a sudden, you know, there's catastrophe or whatever. And so yeah. I think that goes along with, you know, and, and, you know, listen, I'm not a neurologist or a psychiatrist, so I don't know exactly what's going on in the brain, but they, they have done research brain scans and kind of genetic components. And, you know, there is something that's going on with those areas of the brain and, and related to addiction and, um, you know, related to, to emotional, um, tolerance. Yeah. I'm, I'm also not a neurobiologist or a neurologist, but, um, <laughs> the, the research that I've, that I've read, um, you know, and I mentioned the reward cascade deficiency is, um, like some people might like have a piece of chocolate cake and be like, oh, this is really good. And they get a, they get a dose of dopamine and it hits their brain and they're like, oh, this is fantastic. It makes them happy. It stays there for a while. And then they're like, okay, you know, I don't need any more. Whereas an addict um, might have less dopamine be produced or they might have, um, it might get, the reuptake might happen more rapidly. They're not quite sure of the functionality of it, but it's basically mm -hmm. like they don't get the, oh, that's enough <laughs> because the, right. the, the dopamine doesn't stay as long for them or the serotonin, whatever, you know, whatever neurotransmitter that's giving them the, hap the happy release. They don't get nearly as, as long of a hit from it or as much of a hit from it and then it like goes away so then they want more and so then that's where the like they think um from my from my reading of the research they think that's where that might be some of the biological component of the addictive personality type where it's right. like okay they just don't from a brain chemistry standpoint don't get the same uh, satiety, we'll call it, you know, from, you know, the same pleasure satiety that, that, uh, normal, uh, I know normal brains, you know, right. or, uh, healthy, healthy functioning, non-addictive brains, uh, get. Right. And that's well, you, I, that you articulated it perfectly. Yeah. That's definitely component. And then of course there's trauma. So I have mm. never worked. Well, I hate black and white always or never, but <laughs> rarely have I seen, a client who has either a severe chronic mental illness, because I used to work with, you know, schizophrenia, mm. 
bipolar or major depression with psychotic features, you know, people who are, have severe mental illness or a substance, a severe substance use disorder who didn't have some type of trauma. And of course, you know, everybody experiences what some might see as a traumatic event differently. So whether it's sexual abuse, physical abuse, natural disaster, you know, mm-hmm. neglect, you know, whatever it is. Um, but that is definitely a common thread. So there's also theories about trauma and what that does to the brain, right? Yeah. And so is it the trauma that changed the brain that then led to addiction or mental illness or, you know, mm. which came first, who knows? Yeah. Um, and so that is definitely a component. I'm very fortunate that I don't have any trauma that I can recall. I mean, of course, according to certain assessments, you know, being a child of divorce is is a tick mark on the trauma side, regardless, mm. you know, there's just, there's different factors. It's called ACE. Um, yeah. And so that's one of them. But other than that, I mean, I, uh, I don't have any significant trauma or what one would consider uh, trauma as far as textbook. And so, you know, who knows? Yeah, there's, there's text, there's textbook trauma, but then there's also, there's also perceived trauma too. Like, and like, right. it's really, it's really hard to know, like what, and there's individual resilience factors, right? Like what, what you or I may consider trauma or what may have been traumatic for us as a child uh, may not have been traumatic, you know, traumatic for, for someone else too. You know, exactly. like, uh, there's, there's a lot of, and this is part of the reason I find the field of psychology so fascinating is because, because it is a, you know, quote unquote soft science as my, as right. my, as my friends with PhDs in mathematics and, uh, and, or, you know, other more firm disciplines uh, like to tell me that that psychology is a soft science but that's kind of what I like about it is is the areas of gray and the areas of unknown and there and there is that uh nature nurture and then there's you know genetics and epigenetics and you know all all of those things and they're like trying to solve the the ultimate puzzle which is like how how does the brain work and why does it work the way it works and you know it's such a fascinating uh you know bio machine um that it's we we don't I don't know when we'll ever get to a point where we feel like we, we have a, a solid understanding of it, but it seems like right. we're always, lear- we're always learning something new about how it, how it functions, but it, there's so many, there's so many variables to try and test and, and uh, so many factors to get into. So um, I want to give a little background on, on why I, why I asked Audrey to come in and, and, you know, it's something that, that she and I have talked a little bit about, you know, um, I think it's important for people to understand that like personally, I'm going to do dry January um, because um, it's a, it's an important thing for me as I've gone through the pandemic, I'm sure this is not uh, an experience that I'm alone in, but as I've gone through the pandemic and it's, and it's worn on, I have found it harder and harder to, uh, you know, not have nebulous time and to not feel the the desire or urge to unwind with with a drink or, you know, um, to, to unwind with multiple drinks, regardless of the day of the week, too, sometimes, because, you know, you might look at your calendar for for a day and be like, Oh, well, I don't have anything. I don't have anything until 10am tomorrow. So I have a very flexible schedule. And I might work until I might work until one o'clock in the morning. And, you know, it, it, it all kinds of gets a little uh, it gets a little bit less structured and a little less clear. And for me, I know that as that structure has gone away, it's been easier and easier for me to slip into what I would consider an unhealthy consumption pattern of alcohol, not necessarily like drinking to 
drunkenness or drinking to excess per se, but when you add up, you know, two or three drinks a night over the course of an entire week, that becomes very much an unhealthy consumption pattern. Um, and then you can also have, you know, the nights where it's like, oh, it's Saturday and I definitely don't have to work tomorrow. So you can have, you know, eight or nine drinks and then tolerance builds up and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, with my background, um, I, I did have some issues in my past, uh, particularly in college when I hurt my back, I got a addicted to Vicodin and, uh, and Valium because it was prescribed to me. <laughs> and then I, I realized pretty quickly when I could no longer play football that it was fun to take those and helped numb both the emotional and physical pain of my, of my back injury. Um, and then, you know, down the road, you know, alcohol abuse was, was fairly common when you played rugby and <laughs> when you're in a fraternity and all of those things. And so you right. kind of learn some of those social behaviors that as you transition into your twenties are still socially acceptable. But then as you transition into your thirties, they're not so acceptable and they're definitely not, they're definitely not healthy. And then when you become a father, <laughs> they're definitely not healthy and definitely not the type of thing that, that you want to be doing. So for me personally, um, I've decided that, you know, I want to do dry January, which is, um, something I've done before. And I think it's a, a good thing. And from a health perspective, I can tell you, you know, anybody that's listening that it is good, even if you're just a casual drinker, even if you don't have any of the issues that I'm articulating, you know, that I've struggled with in, in my life, um, it is still just from a health perspective, a good idea to give your body a break, to give your liver a break. A lot of really, really important functions happen in the liver, um, you know, metabolic function, um, conversion of T3 to T or T4 to T3, um, you know, all sorts of, all sorts of biological processes. Um, the liver is very, very important. Sleep, hormone production, all of those things get better if you don't drink. So giving yourself even just one month off is a, is a very, very good thing, but it can also help you identify triggers and other mm -hmm. things like that. Um, so with that said, I'm going to shut up and let Audrey um, talk a little bit about some of the strategies um, that we think are going to be productive for a dry January. And um, what, what do you, what do you recommend for someone? Hey, we'll start with someone like me. Cause it's about me. Let's, let's be, <laughs> it's your podcast. <laughs> it, so, so for someone like me with a history of some problematic behaviors, um, but not necessarily ever full-blown alcoholism or things like that. Not that, and we've talked about this before. There is alcoholism in my family. I don't feel like I've ever gone in down to that level of, uh, you know, destructive behavior, but there's definitely been problematic and abusive behavior in my past. So what would you recommend for someone like me? And then we can pivot to someone, well, again, I'll, I'll, I'll say air quotes, more normal or with a more right. healthy, you know, a more healthy perspective towards, towards alcohol, but that still would like to do a, a dry January. So like, I guess strategies for people with addictive or abusive types of backgrounds, and then maybe strategies for people that don't have any yeah, well, I mean, I would say like, you know, with anything that you're trying to quit or take a break from, don't have it in the house, right? And, you know, we're really fortunate. In say you've got a collection of bourbons in your, you know, asking for a friend, but just say you've got like <laughs> 10 half drunk bottles of, of fairly, fairly expensive bourbons. What do you Yeah, do that's a good point. Or people <laughs> who have extensive wine collections or wine cellars and, you know, so keeping it somewhere out of sight. So if possible, like if you normally have your collection displayed, you know, where you pass by it often, mm. you know, can you move it somewhere temporarily or, you know, putting a visual stop so, so you're putting saying, a sign. Don't drink all of those bottles before January 1st. Exactly. Yeah. That <laughs> that kidding, would be counterproductive. 
Um, but yeah, so, so I think that's the thing about it is right. And, and, you know, you know, being a coach and, and, you know, nutrition coach and fitness coach that you have to have strategies because you can't rely on motivation. Willpower is not a thing. Like they've done plenty of studies that it's like 10 minutes in the morning and then we're all done. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I'm paraphrasing of course, but yeah, yeah. but that's, I mean, that's the cliff notes. I mean, essentially motivation is very fleeting, like very fleeting. Yeah. (laughs) And And so you many of yourself up for success and environmentally, I think is what you're saying, like set up your environment for success first and foremost by removing cues and temptation. Right, exactly. And then, you know, seeking support, if you can tell people, you know, even if you live alone, if you have a couple of people that you can talk to about it and have that accountability and be like, hey, you know, I'm doing, you know, a dry January, do you want to do it with me? Even if they don't, could I call you if I'm having a craving, Um, you know, and just really seek that support because, you know, not just because I'm a mental health professional, but just, I know in my own life and, and just the way that we work as social animals, like we can't function totally alone Mm. And especially when it comes to, to things like that. I mean, we're just uh, far I think more the pandemic successful. has made that pretty clear, right? That we, right. we need we need the social interaction. I think that's part of the reason some of us are struggling so much is because we don't have that social interaction, that face to face nearly as much. So right. um, and that, even those of us that are maybe more introverted and, and need that downtime to refuel you know, we still need connection. If it's one thing I learned through my own work and therapy and, you know, tackling my own addictions is the connection is really what I was seeking, I think. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you mentioned that, you know, kind of as we get older, I mean, for me, it was like, I, my body couldn't keep doing the things it was doing. Oh know, yeah. I didn't even get 20s. into that. Yeah. I definitely, I definitely it's can't. like a whole nother level, right? <laughs> yeah. you, go huh. back, you go back and try and drink with the college, you know, the, the old boys go back and try and drink with the young ruggers and it's, uh, yeah, you, know, you can, you can keep up, but they're, they're up, you know, running, running a mile the next day. And we're like, you know, dragging our old bones out of bed at 11 o'clock with right. our aspirin and like, let's go get breakfast. Cause we're dying. Right. Yeah. So that's a side note, but I think just seeking support, having visual, aids and so as silly as it sounds you know putting a sign on the liquor cabinet or on the you know wine cellar or whatever just remind to remind yourself of like what is your goal Mm. you know and like making it a supportive positive you know not to get too woo woo but positive affirmations right having some kind of mantra again it's that strategy so that when you don't feel strong enough or you're feeling tempted or you're not motivated to keep on the track of whatever the goal is, you have that reminder. And so Mm. there's a lot of plans that I work with clients to create. So whether if they have chronic suicidal thoughts, if they have, you know, cravings for a substance or behavior that they want to try to change is making a list of what's going to help them so that they don't have to think of it in that moment because the brain, right. It shuts down certain abstract thinking when we're in a crisis or when we're feeling depressed or emotional, right? You, you literally can't access the parts of the brain that are needed. And so why make it hard on yourself? Like, right? Like you just write out the list, you know, write out why you're doing it, write out what your strategies are so that when you're feeling, you know, unmotivated, you can look at, okay, wait, I need to do this. And next I need to do this. So, you know, creating that list of what's going to help 
you know, go for a walk, listen to a song, call a friend, you know, whatever it is that works for you. And sometimes this is experimentation, trial and error, and some things may work on some days that don't work as well on, on other days, right? And that's why you want to have plenty of tools in the toolbox. Um, and it's like, you know, when you're on the platform lifting, some days are going to suck, right? You're not going to feel in tune what? with things. <laughs> you're going to, the bells feel really heavy. Your breath is all over the place, you know, like just all the millions of things that are off. Um, but it's like, if you just stick to the plan and you just show up like over time, it'll work out. So that would be the number one thing I would say is seek support, have some visual cues, make a list of why you're going to do it. You know, why do you want to do a dry January? And then what are you going to do to replace that behavior? Because we can't mm. just take away a behavior and then not have anything to replace it. And ideally you want to replace it with something healthy and beneficial, you know, that's important because it can be very easy to be like, I'm going to give up drinking, but man, gambling is fun. Right. Cross addiction. <laughs> ding, we, ding, ding. Yeah. We definitely, we definitely don't want to replace it with, with something like that. So what are some, what are some healthy coping behaviors that you've seen work well for people? And I know you said like, try different ones, like just like we try different strategies on the platform to see what, what works for you and, and, and your brain for, for keeping yourself calm and, and doing well. What are some strategies right. that, that you think people can try some different strategies they can try? Yeah. Like, so pick up a hobby. That could be another thing to list of like, are there things that you've been wanting to try that you haven't? Cause you didn't feel like you had the time or whatever, you know, um, you know, reading, like just something that's like tangible that you can do during that time. So that the time you would normally be drinking, it's like, you're going to have that environmental cue, right? Like, oh, it's five o'clock or, you know, pre-pandemic with the commute, although some people, you know, still have a commute, maybe you drive past that certain liquor store or certain friend's house or bar or whatever. So you have those environmental cues. And so in those cases, it's like, take a different route you know, replace the regular driving route with a new driving route. So whatever your environmental cues are, set up a strategy that, okay, no, instead of drinking at that time, I'm going to do the following and you just do it consistently to build that habit. And so, do you, and do you recommend that people, um, like, because for, for me, like I've done this before and we've talked about, you know, one of the strategies that, that you talked to me about earlier when we were talking is um, like listing your triggers and beginning to identify your triggers. Mm -hmm. um, so is that something that, that you recommend that, that people, especially if it's their first time doing it, that they, that they like, is that something they should write down? Yeah, like, the, definitely. Cause, cause maybe you're not even sure. Right. Cause that's the thing is sometimes it's just so automatic, right. It's created mm -hmm. this habit loop in the brain that you're not even aware. And that's why the dry January can be just a really interesting experiment just to learn more about yourself. Oh, I didn't even realize that that was a trigger. So maybe it's mm. talking to a certain person, time of day, you know, seeing something. A lot of times what the craving is, is it's tension in the body. And so the reward system is, okay, relieve the tension in the body by having a drink, right? Mm. Or doing whatever it is. You yeah. know, and the, and the triggers, the triggers can be both environmental, physical or emotional. Right. And that's yeah. one thing I learned was like, you know, we talked like foot, like watching football on Sundays for me is a big trigger because for the longest time, like watching football with friends or whatever, like having beers was just part of that routine. Right. Right. Um, but also like 
loneliness, isolation, mm-hmm. boredom, like all of those same things that can be triggers for emotional eaters are a lot of times, you know, um, are, are yeah. triggers for people that drink as well. So like it can be, it can be both physical cues as well as, as environmental cues or environmental triggers, uh, emotional triggers, right? There's, it doesn't have to be a physical thing, right? It, it right. Exactly. There's external and internal. Yeah. There you Absolutely. Go. <laughs> better, better said. Yeah. And so in the case of like the football, right, is like, okay, you can experiment with planning ahead to have some kind of mocktail or, um, you know, pleasant drink. And so, you know, people in the recovery world recommend against non-alcoholic just because it tastes so, Mm -hmm. you know, pretty much the same and they can actually just fuel the craving, but you know, that's an individual choice. And of course, if somebody isn't like sparkling water, that because you get the, you get the fizzy, you get some kind of flavor, but it's not, but it's not, but it's not beer. Right. 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 Like, so I, I, I might have like, you know, a full like six cases of sparkling (laughs) sparkling water in my fridge but you know that's better than six different kinds of ipa exactly and less calories you know so it can also be conducive to just being healthy in january and so um so having replacements like that and so for some people they might find okay watching the football game's not worth it like it's too it's too much it -hmm. triggers too much um but over time that often changes and that's why like the firsts of doing anything when you're changing a habit or harder, right? And then it's mm. just that consistency and then you can change your habit loop and then it's not as hard. You're like, oh. And how do you, how do you deal with, and again, we're getting back to the binary, right? Black and white. And this is something I struggle with is like, how do you deal with if, if you fail, right? And I say fail again in quotes, right? But like, what if you fall off, right? Yeah. You, 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 you were doing great. You did a full two weeks and then, oh man, I, you know, I fucked up and I had, right. I had, I had a couple of beers. Well, dry January's fucked now. Right. Yeah. Again, <laughs> black and white thinking, right. All or nothing. I would say, okay, do an autopsy, do an autopsy on that situation. Like look at each piece, like what was going on that day? You know, were you not taking care of yourself that day? Were you more stressed? Were you thirsty? You know, were there some warning signs that you didn't pay attention to? What were they? Maybe you didn't realize they were warning signs and, and now you do, you know? And so learning, from that because Mm. yeah i mean i can beat myself up with the best of them but in the end you have to ask yourself how is this productive yeah and i guess uh, a follow-up question is am i setting myself up or do we set ourselves up for failure by calling it dry january and and making it like i'm gonna go the entire month without a drink like is that even a good strategy or should it be for some people should it be like uh, a reduction strategy and is that maybe a difference between somebody who just needs to stay like completely avoid versus somebody who just needs to reduce like i I don't know yeah i mean that's a great question and i think you know like you say it depends Right. And it's my, so favorite, it's like, my favorite answer to every question. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, what is the goal? Like, have you never done a 30 day, you know, absence from alcohol and you just want to see, okay, can I do this? And, and if it's difficult, at what point is it difficult and why? And then you can learn from it. And it's like, you know, many people might think like, oh, well, I don't have a problem until then they try to do something differently. And it's like harder right than expected and so then you can just learn from it and so i mean i think harm reduction is fabulous i don't think that complete abstinence is necessary or beneficial for everyone i mean when you're talking about heroin 
that's a little bit different, <laughs> yes. right? Because yes. I don't context you know. matters. The, the, <laughs> yeah. the, dr the drug of choice is definitely is definitely important for you know. We're talking about abstinence from alcohol here, just so we're very very clear. Like yeah. uh, if 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 meth is the problem, I definitely recommend zero is is the right amount of meth to, to do. Right. Yeah. So yeah, substance definitely definitely matters. But then again, you know, it's, it goes back to like what is the person's goal, and if they're not wanting to completely abstain from heroin, then let's let's do a harm reduction, you know, mm. let's get clean needles, let's get, you know, less yeah. is, is good, you know, so it just depends. But with alcohol, you know, it's of course more socially acceptable, but it still is a toxin, right? Mm -hmm. And there's oh, yeah. no disputing 100%. that. And I've, I've heard you talk about it on other podcasts and you know a lot more of the science behind it than I do, but the, the point is just looking at, okay, how is it enhancing your life? And that's the thing. I mean, I haven't had any alcohol for, I don't know, since like 16 years now, oh, good on you. do I think I would, would think it, but do, I don't know, would it be a problem if I started drinking again? Maybe, maybe not. However, I don't see that it would enhance my life. Mm. Right. And so, because yeah. I know that I do have addictive traits, um, it just doesn't seem worth it to me. However, there are plenty of people who maybe were drinking in a problematic way who then go to some harm reduction and are able to achieve moderation and it's great. And then they can still, you know, have a glass of wine that they want to, or, you know, drink some of your scotch collection or, you know, bourbon, whatever. But, bourbon uh, sorry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I like scotch too. That's see, that's part of my problem is like, I was a bartender and I worked at a wine bar in, in college. And like, I, yeah. I'm a professionally trained bartender. So I know all of the spirits. Well, I right. also love beer. <laughs> I love, I love wine. Like I, I, and it, I do appreciate it. And it does enhance, it does enhance my experience with certain foods and things like that. And um, I have been successful with moderation uh, in the past, but I also, I've also seen that be a it can be a slippery slope because of my addictive personality type and depending on how mindful I am of the stressors in my life and like let's be honest this is a this is like a brave new world for a lot of like this is the first global pandemic I've ever lived through how about you right yeah. like it's, uh -huh. <laughs> you know so it's a it's definitely a, a kind of a different a kind of a different thing but as I've been um, you know, as I've been, you know, being more retrospective and, and introspective towards the end of the year, as I tend to do, like looking back, I'm like, I'm like, eh, probably a good idea to, to look at this because it's, mm -hmm. you know, it, it is, especially as I look at what do I want to accomplish in 2021, you know, you start looking at, well, how does this, how does this support that goal? Does right. this, like, the, does it actually enhance my life in, in, in a way that's making meaningful progress in the directions that I want to go, right? Is right. the enjoyment I derive from it worth the trade-off, you know? And then is it more problematic than it is helpful, right? Those, those types of. Yeah, you know, those, well, but and to answer your question about, you know, more specifically about if you quote unquote fail, right? Like, let's say the, you want to do 30 days of you no know, alcohol and then at day 14, you know, you have a drink looking at, okay, you know, like I said, what was going on during that day? What can you learn from it to apply to the next day? And then also looking at how did you feel afterwards? And mm. that way, the next time you have a craving or you feel the urge to have a drink, you think about, okay, well, remember last time that's how I felt. And that's where it can be helpful to write those things down and to keep a drinking log. And so even for people who aren't going for abstinence, who want to do, you know, moderation, it's like write down your drinking plan for the week and then mm. write down your actual. And so, you know, kind of getting off topic, talking about moderation, but if you, you know, say you're going to drink three times 
this next week you decide when and then you're not allowed to change that decision unless it's mm. 24 hours or more ahead of time so let's say you plan to drink monday wednesday friday but then on monday you get an invitation for a birthday gathering a zoom gathering on saturday and you want to drink well then you can change it because it's at least 24 hours in advance and so that can help you identify any sort of impulsive decision making mm. where it's like in the moment you're like ah screw it I'm stressed or I deserve it. Drinking. Yeah. I'm going to yeah. have a drink. It's like, well, it wasn't part of the planned day. And so, and then similar, you know, similar approach that we take to emotional eating and right. to stay, staying on plan and like having a plan for cheat meals, like, or, or holidays, meal, like right? you yeah, or holidays, talk yes. about. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I I'm, I'm with that. I, that completely tracks for me there's no delicate way to put this. How do you, how does somebody assess whether they need, you know, cause we talked about support and you were talking about social support, but how does somebody assess whether or not they need professional support? Like how, how, like what are the, what are the cues that somebody should be like, I need to seek professional help for this process, right? Like yeah. what, what are some of the cues for that? Right. Well, if you're going like off of the standard diagnostic manual, as far as like, what is an alcohol use disorder, right? Cause that's what the, the current diagnoses. It's alcohol use disorder, mild, moderate, or severe. And so there's, you know, a list of criteria and you have to meet a certain amount of the criteria to qualify for a mild, moderate, or severe. And so I would just encourage people, don't look at like what you think of as the stereotypical addict or alcoholic, right? Mm. It's not about like, are you getting DUIs left and right? I mean, if you are, that's a concern, right? Yeah. Um, but it's basically like, are you drinking in spite of negative consequences? Like knowing that there's negative consequences, like when I drink, I get in fights or when I drink, I get in arguments. When I drink, it causes problems with my finances, with my relationships, with my health. And yet I'm doing it anyways right mm -hmm. and so even just three or four of the i think nine criteria don't quote me mental health professionals <laughs> i'm not looking at the manual but you know that can be a mild use disorder and that's mm -hmm. where i would probably recommend moderation do you start. have do you have a link for that by chance that we can put in the show notes could you share that i can share that yeah it's out awesome. of the dsm-5 so yeah i'll absolutely i'll send that awesome. to you mm-hmm and then, you know, so looking at, you know, do you have a mental health or a physical health diagnosis that is that alcohol exacerbates that? So mm. obviously it's a depressant. So if you're somebody who's depressed and being treated for depression or even not treated, being treated for depression, you got to really ask yourself, like, why are you using a substance that mm. is increasing depression? A lot of times anxiety, anxiety rebound. That, you just like, read my mind. Yeah. A lot of times people see the payoff for drinking as it helps with anxiety um, because, you know, anxiety, how we experience that in the body is sort of an elevated state, right? Tachycardic, like increased heart rate, tension in the body. And so alcohol can smooth those edges seemingly, but it absolutely has that rubber band effect where your tolerance to for anxiety changes. And so your threshold changes. And so it actually can make your anxiety worse. And the same with sleep. Seems like it promotes yeah. sleep, right? But I think anybody definitely who's done a fair a good, amount of drinking. not a good sleep aid. Like, yeah, you might fall asleep initially or pass out, which isn't actually falling asleep, it's passing out. But, and then yeah. there's a rebound where you wake up 
two or yeah. three in the morning and you it's can't the difference between sleep. being sedated versus going to sleep like they sedate you to do surgery they don't you don't go to sleep like they right. sedate you there is a there is a very very big difference it is not restorative to be sedated it is uh the opposite of that it is something your body needs to recover from so right uh, that's a, yeah. So I would just look at, you know, are you having difficulty meeting your obligations, whether it's related to personal, you know, school, mm-hmm. occupational, you know, if you're having trouble following through or meeting those obligations at the level that you feel like you should or want to, then that's another indicator that, you know, maybe it is causing a problem. Maybe it is an issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, and I'll like, I know I, the question I asked was, was about how do you know if you have a problem? And I like, and I think you answered it very cleanly. I, I think part of the reason I'm always coming back to it is because, is because even though it's not necessarily problematic for me at a lot of times in my life, it is non optimal. It's mm-hmm. suboptimal. Right. And like, uh, if you're looking to thrive and you're looking to like, you're looking to be an exceptional performer. You're looking to, ha- you know, do a lot of things, you know, which is kind of my drive in life, right? Like I, I always try to be at the end of the bell curve. You know, I, I, I strive to be a high performer. Yeah. Alcohol. I don't know how you do everything you do. <laughs> Alcohol consumption is not, is not going to be, is not going to be conducive to that, right? Like, yeah. It, you know, you're looking to recover optimally from your workouts. You're looking to perform optimally at your job. You're looking to be the best, you know, partner, you know, parent, you can be like alcohol consumption is probably not going to support that either. Right. And I think that's probably where, I think that's where my, I don't know how to, I don't know how to articulate, but that's where my fixation on like, Oh, am I drinking too much? Or is this Mm -hmm. like the right thing? It's because I know it's suboptimal. Right. (laughs) And I always, I always come back to that. And so I think that's part of the reason I I fixate on it. uh, Probably, probably more than I, more than I should. Well, the other criteria that's worth noting is cravings, withdrawal and tolerance. So cravings is, I mean, I think pretty much everybody knows what that feels like. That's something that, you know, you can really be mindful of when you're having a craving, look at like, are you perpetuating that or or can you curb that? And so there's a couple Mm. different techniques to do that. But one is just like allowing some time to pass um, Mm. because it does pass. And it's again, like I talked about that tension in the body, it's, it's so tempting to just be like, Oh, I'll have the drink or I'll eat the cake or I'll smoke the cigarette because that's going to satisfy the craving. But there's other things that will satisfy the cravings because many times it's not actually the alcohol that you're craving. It's Mm. relief from that tension or relief from that uncomfortable state. And so that's where going for a walk, doing all the things on your coping skills list. Well, and, that, right? and that ties back to what we were talking about earlier. You, you were talking about, um, you know, uh, addicts tend to feel the feelings, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? To, they feel the feelings at a really high level and right. uh, learning to be able to identify the feeling, sit with the feeling and not necessarily act on the feeling immediately. Like those things kind of like tie together. And that's uh, like, you're angry. Okay. You're angry. That doesn't mean you have to yell right? Right. or you're sad. That doesn't like, you don't have to do something like just being able to sit in the feeling and let it, and let it be very well a said. Re- yeah. really hard thing to do. But I also feel like that's this, like almost the exact same thing with the craving. Right. And it can be like, I'm feeling the feeling of being sad. And that, then I, then that triggers the craving for alcohol. And right. both of those things that you need are, might be things you need to sit in and identify and be like, okay, this will pass. 
Right. Right. And let that, and that's super hard. Like, even as I say that, it makes me more tense because I'm like, oh God, that's so, that's so hard to do because you have to be aware that you're sad. And then you have to be aware that you're, you're having a craving for something that is, and it's actually to relieve the feeling of being sad. Right. And you have to just (laughs) sit in that long enough to let it dissipate and it will intensify before it dissipates. I can tell you from my own personal experience, it usually gets stronger once you identify it and recognize it. You're like, oh yeah, that does sound really good. I would really like to have, uh, you know, three fingers of bourbon right now. Right. And then that's when it's like looking at emotions are cues, right? Like emotions Mm. can be uncomfortable and they're not always factual. Most of the time they're not, but they're, they're cues that we need to pay attention to. Okay. Am I sad because I just had a thought that was erroneous, you know, like I thought like, oh, I'm worthless. So then I, I felt sad. Okay. Mm. Well, let me look at why, why am I having that thought? And that's where cognitive behavioral therapy comes in. But, you know, just looking at, is this actually a cue, a piece of information that you need to identify like, Hey, I'm not taking care of myself. It's just like when we feel thirsty by Mm. then, you know, we're, we're probably past the point we should have had something to drink, you know, water earlier, but it's a cue right? Mm. And the same, you know, there's all kinds of physical cues, but, but I argue that emotions are cues as well to our, to our mental well-being. And so using that information and that's where talking about it can be helpful. Just saying it out loud. I mean, I talk to myself a lot. You could ask my boyfriend. Um, and, you know, if you don't have somebody you can share it with in that moment, you know, can you tell your pet, can you write it down? Um, you know, again, journaling. I mean, I know it just sounds so simplistic, but (laughs) yeah, there you go. So, so those are some things just to look at, you know, maybe, maybe it will help connect, connect with something, you know, outside of yourself. And then also within, you know, meditation, breathing exercises, grounding exercises, these are all things that can help with cravings to give the time to pass. And sometimes it'll pass and it'll come back again and it'll pass and it'll come back again. And, you know, it's just a skill that, that you can build over time. Um, and so then tolerance is obviously needing more and more to satisfy that same feeling. And so that's, that's an indicator that, okay, this could be problematic because when I used to have two, now I need four to experience the same effect. And then lastly, withdrawal. I mean, basically a hangover is withdrawal. That's the body going through withdrawal, but more, more severe symptoms definitely are an indicator of a problem. If there's, you know, shakes, there's acute withdrawal, which is life-threatening for alcohol and benzodiazepines, but, um, you know, withdrawal from other drugs is very uncomfortable Mm, (laughs) and feels like you're going to die, but you're not actually going to die. Whereas from alcohol you can. So being mindful, you know, if somebody's wanting to do a dry month, I would not recommend it if they have been a heavy drinker um, because yeah, you can very, go into very important, very yeah. important to, to call out that that is very true because as as terrible as heroin withdrawal is, it doesn't usually kill people, but uh, right. alcohol withdrawal can can actually kill you. So, yeah. If, yeah. If so you, just be mindful of that, you know, I'm not a doctor disclaimer, but four to seven days after your most recent drink. Um, you know, if you start experiencing, you know, severe tremors, increase in blood pressure, not, you know, nausea, vomiting, dry heaving, sweats, feel like your skin is crawling, like kind of prickly, a tight band around your head. These are all symptoms of acute withdrawal. Mm -hmm. And so definitely, you know, getting medical intervention 
Um, and then post-acute withdrawal syndrome is also not fun, but it's not life-threatening and that can last anywhere up to two years if somebody's going into, you know, full abstinence. And that involves all kinds of emotional and mental symptom, mental health symptoms, you know, mood swings, anxiety, um, sleep disturbance, appetite disturbance. I mean, it's basically a roller coaster. Not everybody experiences it and not everybody experiences all of it or, you know, as intensely, but just something to be mindful of if somebody was, you know, wanting to go into recovery or, or full-blown abstinence that can be a factor and it makes it difficult. And that's where you really need your coping skills. And you talked a little bit about structure and that I think has been a huge factor with the pandemic, right? Is like, we don't all have our structure and stuff is so nebulous because we're at home more and there you isn't don't have the, the markers. Commute, you know? mm -hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't have my weekend movie, you know, I would go to the movies every weekend. It's like, I don't have the bookends um, to my routine that I used to have. And, and, you know, it's been really difficult. And so that's, we're just trying to create as much structure as one can to kind of regulate those things. And that's where, you know, having training with y'all has been so beneficial because I have that to count on. Um, and look forward to even when I'm not looking forward to it. Right. But it's like, <laughs> it's that thing of where I know if I just, you know, suit up and get out there and start chalking my bells and get my warm up by then, you know, like you did the hardest motivation <laughs> kicks in usually, or yeah. I'm like, well, I'm here. I might as well finish. Right. <laughs> and so that can be the same thing with, you know, trying the dry January is just looking at each day and like just focusing on that day and what can you do to build some structure and distraction and um and learn from it yeah and i think uh you know it's the the parallels are so strong because it's uh you know one of the things i love about kettlebell training is it is it is a mental it is as much in, as anything a mental discipline and a mental practice and just like you know you were just alluding to like you just you have to go through sometimes you have to go through the motions and, and that that and then it becomes self-reinforcing and but you do the hard thing every time every time you do it and it gets a little bit easier and you get better at doing hard things you right. know and that's I think that's kind of the same thing uh, the same thing with this is like it is like going into it knowing it might not be easy but you have a plan you have some structure you know and just know that it's not always going to feel good it's not always going to be easy but you but that you can do it you can overcome and if you fall off or you miss a training or you miss a you know you have then you just assess and right. you go you go back and you and you and you you pick right back up where you were right you don't it's it's really easy to dwell on failure especially for the black and white uh you know light switch personalities yes um, but but that's not productive right We're assessing right. assessing what was going on is productive and then starting back up right just picking right back up that's productive right choosing choosing the productive approach as opposed to the counterproductive or destructive approach i think is 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 very very huge so right well and just to touch on because you said you know how does someone know if they need to seek help and um you know i think it's just it's less stigmatized now maybe than it used to be but i think there's still this feeling of oh i should be able to do this on my own or it's not that bad or you know it's it's weak to look for help. And I can just assure everyone, you know, you're not alone. Plenty of people seek help for different things. And I wish it wasn't so much of the stigma, but it's like, you know, if I need help 
with a skill, I seek out an expert. Like I don't do my own taxes. You know, I seek out a professional. I don't try to program my own workouts, you know, because I, you know, I need the expertise. I need the accountability. Um, and the same goes with, you know, medical help, you know, mental health treatment. There's, there's plenty of avenues out there. I don't believe in dogma when it comes to anything. And so there's not just one way to skin a cat. Like there's 12 step groups, there's Buddhist based groups, there's cognitive behavioral based groups called smart recovery. There's one-on-one -on -one therapy. If you know, if that's what somebody feels like is beneficial, you know, just start somewhere. Yeah. Starting and is check with your part. insurance company because like I, I literally just, I literally yes. just got a thing from, from my, my insurance and email that was about, um, they're, they're increasing the coverage for mental health and substance counseling during the pandemic as they go into 2021, because I think they're realizing people are really struggling. And yeah. so they're for, for a, a lot of insurance companies are covering it a hundred percent right now because the, because of the impact of the pandemic on people. So I would say, um, check with your insurance company because you might even be able to, even if you don't feel like you need professional support, you might be able to get it for free. Right. So, why not? I mean, like if you've got somebody that can, that can help you, like it's a, it's a tool in your tool belt and somebody that, that you can lean on um, that has, you know, expertise like Audrey has is, you know, I, I feel like super, super valuable. So that, that's my hot tip is like, Hey, check with your insurance. Cause you might, you might actually be able to get like professional support and not have to pay anything out of pocket for it. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you can just Google, you know, online addiction help, online no cost support groups. I mean, that's the thing where the pandemic has opened up. Like you could literally go to a support group anywhere in the world. So if you're also worried about privacy and, you know, cause even with online meetings, if you join a local chapter, so to speak of whatever organization, you may see somebody that you know, or you may be worried about that, but now you can actually Google, you know, 12 step meeting in Germany or smart recovery meeting in Omaha or, or wherever you don't live. If you want to you know do that and and minimize kind of that because like i understand people are hesitant and worried and there's professional aspects you know i work with a lot of medical professionals and that's something that kept them from seeking treatment is they're really worried about their medical license and you know their professional license and um and even though there's hipaa laws that they understand it's still it still can be a concern. Yeah. So just there's those, those options as well. Yeah. And that's, that's part of the, part of the reason I wanted to kind of be open about, about some of my struggles with it is because I feel like, I mean, like it makes me nervous to talk about it. Like, I'm not going to lie. Mm -hmm. I mean, it does, it does make me nervous to talk about it, but I feel like it's important to do that because I think people need to know that it's uh, it's okay to, yeah. to need help. It's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to say like, Hey, this is a, I'm having a hard time right now. <laughs> like, I, I feel like, you know, it, it's humanizing. And I think we're all in this together because, uh, you know, I, there hasn't been anybody that I've said, Hey, I'm having a hard time right now. That's been like, really? Right. Oh. <laughs> What's <laughs> like, wrong with you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everybody's having a hard time right now. I feel like and, yeah. and, diff and in different and in different areas, different ways. Right. You know, some people it's, you know, it's working out. Some people it's eating. Some people it's like finding the motivation to do their job or like feel like you're being a good parent. Like there's all sorts of like we're all struggling in different areas, you know, but I feel like we're all, you know, we're all in the same storm. We're not all right. in the same boat, but we're all in the same storm right now, you know? So, uh, I, I feel like it's okay to be like, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling right now. Yeah. And, well, I mean, and I can definitely say that I am struggling. Like this has been a very difficult thing. And I've gone through a lot of very difficult things, um, in my life. And, 
this is just it's just so different you know we just don't have the context and there's you know, no playbook for, for this one <laughs> yeah there's like two people in the world right that survived the spanish flu and covid I, you know they're like 108 or whatever yeah. but other than those two people on the planet like this we just you know we're all new to this and so it's really hard because coping skills that have worked like aren't working as well or you know it, it's just it's difficult and so on the note of sort of like that mental mindset because you and i talk about that a lot is you know i mean we can play tricks with our brain because our brain plays tricks on us right and that's where you have to really be aware of what are you thinking in that specific moment you know how what evidence do you have to support that thought or that belief and looking how that affects you i mean i do it all the time on the platform I'm like, this is the last minute I ever have to do, you know, when I'm sprinting that last minute. I mean, I, I actually make myself think that like, I never have to do another rep again. I'm just, this is the last minute. Right. And, and it gets me through, you know, it's like, of that's, course, as soon as I set the bells awesome. down, I know that, well, I'm going to do, I have to do another four minutes here in, in a couple of minutes, you know, but it's just getting that mind set and the same you know and, and your we brain do doesn't in- scream back at you liar because that's what happens i tell my brain i tell my brain that and it screams back at me you're lying to me and i know yeah. you are right well i mean and, and the same can be said for you know a negative an automatic negative thought and where it you know it's like how many times am i going to lie to myself and be like no i can have this box of cookies in my house it's mm. fine I'll, i'm only going to have a couple yeah. <laughs> you know and this time like, will be different yeah exactly and so I that's can stop at just one oreo i swear right and so you know silly things like that but you know having a sense of humor about it helps but just really getting honest Mm-hmm. Um, in the times when you need to be, but then also, you know, using some Jedi mind tricks yeah, to the advantage. So to recap the tips, I, I wrote them down because I, you know, well, that was one of them, write things down, but, right. <laughs> but to recap, recap the, the tips, right. Set, set up your environment for success, right. Mm-hmm. So remo- removing things physically from your house, if you can, or putting them out of sight, if, if you can't physically remove them. Um, write out your why's the reasons why you're why you're doing these things get support so social support right let other people know that you're doing this and ask them if they want to support you or if they want to do it with you so right. getting social support then listing your your strategies like finding replacement behaviors picking up a hobby go for a walk reading meditation you know something like that and then writing down and avoiding your triggers so first writing down your triggers and and identifying what they are and then if they're an avoidable thing like driving past your favorite watering hole or your liquor store like avoiding those 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 triggers um and then finally if if you need it seeking out professional help or if you have it available to you like maybe seeking out professional help or or online help mm-hmm. so that, is that a fairly compre- yeah. did i miss any absolutely i think just also the structure and and mm. not being afraid to experiment and change things up you know so we're, we're habitual creatures. I'm very routine. And that's why part of my struggle is consistency when it comes to good nutrition, good fitness It's because if one thing throws me off, then I get out of my routine and then, you know, I'm like floundering. So, you know, but just really being aware of that and working with the schedule and experimenting with different things. And if, you know, like in the case of the commute, you change the the drive home or you change the time that you go to the store or you change the time that you have a meal or you know whatever it is just experiment with changing the habit loop 
you know, by dysregulating some things and, and making it different so that you don't have that external cue happening. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate the time. The The hour plus has has flown by and I want to try and keep it under two hours. I keep feeling like I could keep these. I could easily do two hour podcasts because I could just talk for days with, with yeah, the people well, we're that both I have talkers, on. So, but yeah. uh, I, want to, I want to be respectful of your time and I want to keep it consumable for people. So um, I will put the link to the, the DSM-5 uh, substance substance use criteria uh, in the show notes, uh, as well as the list of the habits that we, that we articulated. So people can just have a Cliff Notes version. Uh, of, of what we recommend for dry January. And if, if anybody wants to, uh, wants, wants support in dry January, you can, you can hit me up, uh, on Instagram or any of the social media, send me an email, you know, twin cities, kettlebell club at gmail.com. Happy to keep it private. Happy to have you in the group. Um, you know, whatever, um, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make dry January, uh, a, a thing for me and give it my, give it my best. And we'll see how, we'll see how everything goes. And I'll, I'll follow up with y'all and let you know, let you know how it's going. Yeah. Um, Keep us posted. Definitely. And thank you so much for having me. I love your podcast. I'm not driving as much. So I notice (laughs) I don't listen to them as soon as they come out. Um, but yeah, I I love them. It's great. Thank you very much. I I appreciate it. It is, uh, it's been, it's been a a helpful outlet for me. Uh, speaking of picking up a hobby, Uh, you know, it's been, it's been a good, it's been a good outlet for me and uh, I really enjoy, I really enjoy these conversations. So, uh, thank you so much for, for taking some time on your Sunday morning, uh, before football starts to, yeah. And you know what today is, is the day that your birds are going to get crushed (laughs) by my Cowboys. I was just going to say, is it, is it, is it the day that we settle our bet? Because I think <laughs> this is. is, I think this is ultimately going to, it's ultimately going to be the determining factor and uh, who, who has the the better or worse record. I mean, we're really just going for like tallest midget at this point, I think because we're the, in the worst division in football and uh, you know, both teams are terrible, but you know, say yeah. it's well, been fun we'll though, see. having the, having the comp- competition within the competition with you. So yeah, one of these, uh, one of these years we're going to be good again you know so hopefully now we got this Jalen Hurts character that apparently apparently is is okay at football so yeah we'll we'll see all right right. well you're awesome Jordan I love you thank you so much you've done so much for me and my just training and everything and so I'm super Uh, grateful and you're doing the hard you're doing the hard you're doing the hard part you do the hard work but I'm I'm really I'm really pumped for uh February is going to be fun. I'm I'm excited to see what you do. I in know, February. I'm excited be, too. I mean, excited bordering on vomiting in my mouth, but yes, I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, all of the best moments in life are like equal parts fear and excitement. Like, yes, yeah. that's all the best moments in life. So exactly. it's gonna be awesome. you're you're prepared, and we've got we still got you know seven more weeks of training to get you even more ready. So I know, as I yay! My, as I twist my mustache, <laughs> excellent. <laughs> all right, well, thanks so much, Coach. I'll see you at next practice. All right, and I'll be good. texting you later about the game, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm <laughs> sure. So Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and we will talk soon. Likewise. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Platform Podcast. I'm Jordan Kundi Wright. If you have a question, please email me at Twin Cities Kettlebell Club at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Twin Cities Kettlebell Club, on Twitter at TCKB Club online at twincitieskettlebellclub.com and please help us grow our reach and give us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time.